time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. My name's Cameron Riley. And my name me- is not. Oh, no, no, no. My name is Ray. Hello. With me as always. Hello, Ray. Mm-hmm. Hello. Um, <clears throat> so, in the last episode, this is episode 15. In episode 14, we talked about Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, mm-hmm. June of 1941. How Stalin wasn't really ready for it. No. It was massive. Uh, fucking disaster from the get-go. Right. Asked for a do-over. Hitler said no. <laughs> and then they had to keep going. It's like my boys when I'm playing chess. Can I take that move back or I just take <laughs> that queen? Can I? Can we play that again? No. <laughs> no. no. That's it. Like life. Never you learn anything. That's right. Think don't before you Don't take your finger move. off the piece. Is, is that a rule if you yes. don't take your finger off the piece? Well, we, yes, kind of. But... Okay. You know, proper chess players don't put their finger on the fucking piece until they know what move they're going right. to make. That's amateur hour, man. Really. They move it with their mind. Oh, that's yes. something. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Well. So in June of 1941, immediately after the invasion of the Soviet Union, an alliance started to form between the UK, the USA, and the USSR to defeat Germany and Japan. Uh, it's known as the Grand Alliance of the Big Three, sometimes also called the Strange Alliance because it united the world's greatest capitalist state, the greatest mm-hmm. communist state, and the greatest mm-hmm. colonial power. Ah, the irony of that. They have mm. one thing in common, which is a common enemy. Other than that, they pretty much hate each other. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, That's right. Now... Churchill, on hearing the news of Germany's invasion, immediately approached Stalin about joining forces. Now, this mm-hmm. is a guy, Churchill, who had been railing about the evils of communism since 1917. Yes. Uh, attacked them, as we may recall, in 1920. Uh, was bombing them and using poison gas on them. And, uh, you know, he... No, no friend of the communists. But now... He's going to try and convince the UK to support the dreaded communists that he has spent the last uh, 30-something years, 34 years, deriding in public. Tricky. 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 Yeah. He gives a a speech broadcast on the very evening of the invasion, uh, declaring support for the ordinary Russians. It's known as the... Fourth climacteric speech. Right. Now, a climacteric is Mm -hmm. the period in a woman's life corresponding to menopause. (laughs) Okay. I'm I'm trying to hang with you. 
Yeah, it is. That's the definition of a climacteric. Oh, okay. All right. So there was or, okay, yeah. Or, yeah. or, or, any critical period. Ah, let's go with change, that one. Change of circumstances. Right. And I won't go into it, but Churchill said, you know, this was, you know, the Hitler's invasion of Poland was one climacteric, and then, you know, declaring war on, you know, the Brits and the French was another one. And, right. and blah, blah. This was the fourth climacteric when he invaded mm. the Soviet Union. Now, um, I've got a couple of clips. I played one at the end of last episode. I'm going to play it again and play another one. Actual recordings of uh, Churchill's at four speech. This morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. This was no surprise to me. In fact, I gave clear and precise warnings to Stalin of what was coming. I gave him warnings, as I have given warnings to others before. Hitler is a monster of wickedness, insatiable in his lust for blood and plunder. So now this bloodthirsty gutter snipe must launch his mechanized armies upon new fields of slaughter. The Nazi regime is indistinguishable from the worst features of communism. It is devoid of all theme and principle except appetite and racial domination. It excels all forms of human wickedness in the efficiency of its cruelty and ferocious aggression. No one has been a more consistent opponent of communism than I have for the last 25 years. I will unsay no word that I've spoken about it. But all this fades away before the spectacle which is now unfolding. The past, with its crimes, its follies, and its tragedies, flashes away. I see the Russian soldiers standing on the threshold of their native land guarding the fields which their fathers have killed from time immemorial. I see them guarding their homes where mothers and wives pray. Ah, yes, for there are times when all pray for the safety of their loved ones, for the return of the breadwinner, of the champion, of their protector. I see the 10,000 villages of Russia where the means of existence was wrung so hardly from the soil, but where there are still primordial human joys, where maidens laugh and children play. I see advancing upon all this in hideous onslaught the Nazi war machine with its clanking, heel-clicking, dandified Prussian officers, its crafty, expert agents, fresh from the cowing and tying down of a dozen countries. I see also the dull, dull, docile, brutish masses of the Hun soldiery plodding on like a swarm of crawling locusts. I see the German bombers and fighters in the sky, still smarting from many a British whipping 
Those delighted to find what they believe is an easier and a safer prey. And behind all this glare, behind all this storm, I see that small group of villainous men who plan, organize, and launch this cataract of horrors upon mankind. There you go. That that reminded me, I don't want to show off how smart I am, but a week ago when we recorded, you you mentioned um, that I think it was 70,000 villages were destroyed. So here Churchill is saying, I see the 10,000 villages of Russians, you know, whatever. So obviously that times seven is how many of the Germans destroyed on their way to the major industrial centers of uh, of Moscow, excuse me, of Russia. And so again, like you were saying last time, these people suffered tremendous loss and pain and suffering on a scale that we cannot possibly imagine. And they got to do it through a couple of winters as well. Russian winters. Mm, the dreaded Russian winter. Yes. <clears throat> um, I just want to point out, though, that as eloquent as Winston's speech uh, was, this mm-hmm. is the same Winston Churchill who in 1920, after World War One, after World War One, being the point, right. authorised poison gas to be dropped on the Russians... The Russians, mm-hmm. by the way, who had never invaded or bombed or attacked the United Kingdom. And now he's calling the Nazis gutter snipes for doing the same thing, <laughs> albeit on a massively bigger scale and with different objectives. Right. But yeah. it wasn't that long ago when he was attacking Russia and now he's you know beating up on the Nazis yeah. for attacking Russia. What's the difference between the two? It's rule number one. It's always okay when you're doing it. Mm. It's also, uh, as I pointed out, I think in the la- towards the end of the last show, worth noting that while Hitler never managed to bomb Moscow, he did bomb, bomb London. Mm-hmm. So uh, when Churchill criticizes Stalin for being caught unprepared, you really have to admire the size of his balls. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's um, after he's this not speech. Yeah. yeah, after the speech, uh, Churchill privately confessed uh, quite famously to his private secretary, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favourable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. <laughs> yeah, you got to, because your priorities shift, your perspective shifts. So as, as much of a threat as Russia is, right now there's a greater threat. And so I must realign my priorities and my perspective to deal with the worst threat. It's just human nature. And I just want everyone to stop and keep in mind what the threat is. Mm -hmm. What is the threat of Germany? It's got nothing to do with invading countries per se. Don't never forget that at this point in time, the United Kingdom or Britain, let's say, Mm-hmm. controlled 25% of the land mass of the world as a result of their expansionism and colonialization of the world. Mm-hmm. Directly or indirectly, like Australia and Canada had their independence by this stage. Briefly, yeah. Australia only got it in 1900, 1901. I'm not exactly sure when Canada got it, around about the same time, I think. But, uh, you know, the, England had conquered a quarter of the land mass of the world. It's, this is really, their, their war with Germany here is a war for economic supremacy. At its heart, mm. 
They're trying to stop Germany from becoming again an economic, a major economic power because it threatens, um, d- directly threatens British interests. Uh, you know, yeah. the invasion and the killing and all of that is just a, is just a byproduct. And if I can add to that, you know, at several points, Hitler said, look, Britain, keep your world empire. Just let us have a, have the reign over uh, Europe proper. And for whatever reason, uh, Britain said no. So they weren't even, you know, willing to just go along with that. Because Hitler, he wasn't interested in empire. He just wanted Europe. He didn't want a world empire. So, but again, Hitler, uh, but Britain wanted things their way. And you can't really blame them for that. But uh he did try to, to negotiate with him to some degree. Well, see, I, I kind of think that, generally speaking, everybody wants everything. The, <laughs> yeah. these, these guys that run the ship, they want it all, whether it's an American or a Brit or a Frenchman or a Spaniard or a German or a Russian. Right. These power-hungry sociopaths who end up running the major pawns in the geopolitical arena – want everything. Now, realistically, they know they can't get everything because there are other people in the way, including their own people and their own political opposition and and those sorts of things. But really, uh, because that's that's the natural consequence. Really, if if what you want is security and control of the wealth, you Mm -hmm. need to, you know, you want it all. You absolutely, you know, that, that hunger is never satiated. Right. It's insatiable. But anyway... So back to uh, the peace between, uh, or the the alliance, let's say, between Churchill and Stalin. So Churchill offered assistance to the Soviets. Uh, There's some telegrams sent via diplomats backwards and forwards. And an agreement is signed between the UK and the USSR on the 12th of July, 1941. So they were invaded on the 22nd of June by the 12th of July, Worked that out, didn't they? There's an alliance. Worked out 25 years of uh, problems and tension. (laughs) Of sorts. And Churchill, to his credit, in his own memoirs, says, look, I I, I was the guy who bombed the fucking shit out of the Soviets uh, (laughs) 20 years ago. I knew that. I knew Stalin knew that. So I wasn't... he, He is quite honest in his memoirs about the fact that, look... There's no secrets here. We all know that we had a history, but now it was in our interests to come together. Right. So um, he sent Stalin a message offering support. And in his memoirs, again, he records Stalin's response where, Mm. for the first time of many, 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 many times, Stalin requests that the Brits open a second front against the Nazis on the West to take the heat off the Eastern uh, uh, Front. He wrote... I fully realize the difficulties involved in the establishment of such a front. I believe, however, that in spite of the difficulties, it should be formed, not only in the interests of our common cause, but also in the interests of Great Britain herself. This is the most propitious moment for the establishment of such a front, because now Hitler's forces are diverted to the east, and he has not yet had the chance to consolidate the position occupied by him in the East. Churchill's response was, eh, nah, I don't think so. It's not in the cards right now. Sorry, Stahl, but not right now. <laughs> yeah, and again, this gets back to the thing where, well, we just, we don't have the resources, man. Yeah. We, 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 we can't do it. 
We don't have the wherewithal, maybe, to start right. the front. They're going to need a couple more years and America's help to get to gear up their economy and turn it into a war economy. Mm. Now, Stalin didn't necessarily take him at face value on that, but we'll get into more of that later. In late July of 1941, uh, so a couple of weeks after the agreement between the UK and the USSR, FDR dispatched his closest advisor and the Secretary of Commerce, Harry Hopkins. Woo! I'm a big fan of Harry Hopkins. I read a bio on Harry Hopkins 20-odd yeah. years ago, and I was like, this man, he was a get-shit-done. He was the Agrippa. Yes, he was FDR's exactly. Agrippa, man. Exactly. Where do you need me, boss? Oh, I'll go do it, boss. Whatever it takes, boss. Yeah. Whatever's next. Yep. He sends Harry Hopkins to Moscow to sound out Stalin on the Soviets' needs, and um, Hopkins and Stalin became BFFs almost immediately. <laughs> Over some vodka. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they were they they got along very well, were very impressed with each other, and yeah. and that lasted their uh, a lifetime. They they were very right. they were quite uh, you know I wouldn't say they didn't go on picnics together, but they were quite close and impressed with each other. Hopkins basically did the right thing. He got there and said, "How can we help? What exactly. do you need? Very what, pragmatic. What do you need, Joe? Yeah, um, Stalin." Uh, outlined everything he needed in the way of supplies and said he was confident that if they got those supplies, the Red Army could hold out for three or four years and and Hopkins believed him. Um, But Stalin also told Hopkins that he didn't think Britain and the Soviet Union alone could win the war. They needed the US to put on their big boy pants and get get all the way in. Right. And you have to wonder, really, what would have happened. You know, Churchill criticises Stalin for forming a non-aggression pact with Germany in 1939 and at various points says, you know, if he'd got involved in the war against Germany in 1939, this could have all been over a lot fucking sooner and a lot of people uh, would still be alive. And that same criticism has to be extended to the United States. They didn't form yeah. a non-aggression pact, but they didn't get involved, which is pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, you have to wonder, and I know like the UK and the USSR, the US wasn't ready militarily to go to war well, not, in 1939. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the FDR was, in my opinion, he was pulling the American people along towards war as fast as he possibly could, but... Uh, you can only pull so fast. So he was doing what he could. We'll get into that later as far as specifics. But yeah, he was doing what he could. And I and I really like the moment when after Harry Hopkins meets Stalin, and they they work. You know, like you said, that he was they were they both recognized in each other very practical, pragmatic men. What do you need to get this done? And he tells him. And so when Hopkins goes back to FDR, he says, "Everybody thinks this is going to be over within six weeks, just like every other war." Nazi Germany's been been in, but I but uh, I've been told by the naval attaché of the United States that Soviet Russia is going to shock and stun the world. And so, if it wasn't for that kind of thing coming from Hopkins himself, FDR might have been a lot less uh, eager to give them all the materials that they're going to very soon promise to deliver to them each and every month, as long as they stay in the war. And as a result of his visit, the U.S. did start trying to support them, but it was slow and it was inept in many ways. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, partly impeded by the distance of getting supplies from the US to the USSR, uh, in, uh, inadequate coordination. Again, these countries had no diplomatic relationship yeah. up until this time. Uh, apart, you know, I think Litvinov, who was the previous foreign secretary before Molotov, right. had been over there bits and pieces, but they had no had no formal diplomatic uh, communication much. I mean, FDR had made some headway into it after 1933, but it didn't get very far. And obviously there was lots of issues in Washington and London over working with the communists. Yeah, I got to get over that hurdle. And that's an ideological hurdle. One other very real hurdle was because Germany kicked ass initially in the Soviet Union that the only place they could... uh, the Americans could deliver at first was Archangel up in the north, which is frozen half the time, and they have to get through the German U-boats and stuff like that. So, yeah, we're going to give you everything we can, but just getting it there is going to be a major undertaking on its own. So for right now, the Soviet Union has to survive on its own. And as we said on the last episode, because it had to survive on its own, it did suffer a lot until those supplies from the U.S. and the U.K. could start flowing in on a semi-regular basis. And there were a lot of people in London and Washington who thought the Soviets would collapse quite quickly, as you said before. And then any supplies we give the Soviets, if they collapse, then well, well, not only that, but the Germans get them to fight us with our own guns, right? So, you know, I don't want to make light of the complexities of these issues, but the bottom line is they weren't getting much Allied support to the Soviet Union in the early stages. Then the first Moscow conference of World War II took place from September 29th, 1941 to October 1st. This is the first time all three parties sit down together. Yeah. Now, Churchill wasn't there and uh, Roosevelt wasn't there. But W. Avril Harriman represented Mm -hmm. the United States and Lord Beaverbrook. Love that name. Yeah. Nice beaver brook. Thanks, I had it stuffed. Uh, represented the United Kingdom. They met with Stalin to give assurances that the, both countries would support the Soviet Union in the fight against the Nazis. Again, Stalin demanded the Allies open a second front in France. Again, they said, sorry, we're not going to do that right now. Here's what we will do. We are going to try very hard to give you, every month, 400 planes, 500 tanks, anti-aircraft and anti-tank guns. We're going to give you motor vehicles, aluminum for your and other metals for your planes and stuff like that. So we're going to give this stuff to you as fast as we can, but you just got to hang in there, even though everybody thinks you're going to be out of this in about six weeks. But if you're not, we will eventually get to you what we can. And for, and for, for someone like Churchill to turn over all those uh, material for everything he had been saying for the last 25 years, that was a big deal. But, um, you know, Desperate times call for desperate measures. So he was doing what he had to do to keep England, excuse me, keep Britain alive and in the war. And didn't you post something on Facebook a couple of days ago about a Sherman tank that was found on the oh, bottom yeah, it was of the found ocean? In the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Where was that? I can't remember now. But yeah, people are finding stuff left. Well, it was, there are, it was uh, I think, off the coast of Archangel. I think it was... Yeah, that's um, right. That's right. That's right. Uh, one, of the, one of the one of the U.S. Ships. Liberty ships that had a shipment of yeah. Sherman tanks... Uh, and it was sunk by a German U-boat, and they just found and, and pulled out of the water the Sherman yeah. tank. And there was another thing. There are more planes from World War II at the bottom of whatever ocean or whatever body of water 
than there are that fly in the sky. I mean, just so many things were shot down or sank from ships or whatever. It just, and again, we're sitting there talking about getting supplies to Russia, obviously thousands of miles away, but just the sheer magnitude of what we were trying to send them on a monthly basis, I don't think we can really truly comprehend unless you see pictures of massive warehouses full of tanks and things like that. Indeed, it's a logistical, uh, major logistical exercise. Um, I want to get back to this Harriman guy that I mentioned representing the US in the first Moscow conference, just to show you what a small world it is. Um, Harriman was a rich guy, uh, son of the founder of the Harriman railroad business. He he acted as a special envoy of the United States. He was later Secretary of Commerce under Truman. Uh, Using money from his father, though, back in 1922, he established a banking business, W.A. Harriman & Co. It later merged with Brown Brothers to become Brown Brothers Harriman, a major Wall Street firm, which is still around today. It's the oldest and largest private bank in the United States. Wow. Daddy, can I have some money? I want to start a bank. Here, son. So, you know, if I'm if if I'm going to send somebody to negotiate with the communists, <laughs> right? I'm going to send the guy who created the oldest and largest private bank in the United States cuz right. you know, he's going to get it. Um, notable employees, uh, past employees of uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, a uh, George Herbert Walker, president President of Harriman's banking business in 1920, the maternal grandfather of President George H.W. Bush and great-grandfather of President George W. Bush. Ah, man. Um, Of course, coming full circle, so Harriman uh, went to that first Moscow conference. Uh, George Mm -hmm. Herbert Walker worked for Harriman. Um, many years later, George H.W. Bush was the veep of the United States when the USSR was dissolved by Gorbachev in uh, 1991. Circle of life. Another, gotcha. another former employee of Brown Brothers Harriman, Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, and for and who we can lay much of the blame of the global financial crisis of 2008 on his shoulders. Uh, it's a combination of him and Bill Clinton, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he worked there uh, for a time as a young man while he was studying. Nice. So that's the kind of guys that were doing this stuff. Uh, meanwhile, Churchill and Stalin continue to send messages to each other. Stalin continuing to request a second front, <laughs> suggesting the UK send battalions to support the Soviets via Iran. Churchill was like... Sorry, dude. We just yeah. we we can't spare <laughs> we just, the troops, man. We're barely. I can't spare. I don't have a square to spare. No, we're we're trying to survive as as much as we can in North Africa and other places. We simply do not have what you need to send all the way through Iran. It's not going to happen. Terribly sorry. He did offer Stalin something, though. Would you care for a jelly baby? Hmm? Would you care for a jelly baby? And Stalin <laughs> Stalin said, "What we've got here is." Failure to communicate. Um, so we're backwards and forwards, but they're mostly being polite to each other. Right. And the, 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 the image of the Americans and the British in 
Russia is changing dramatically as a result of this new support and alliance. In fact, it's interesting, uh, the Soviet propaganda about the US and the UK that's being spread via Pravda, the official newspaper, and those sorts of things, all of a sudden, having been negative for decades and decades, all of a sudden becomes positive. Uh, and, and this is actually well reflected in if, if, if people haven't read George Orwell's 1984 or read it recently, I highly recommend. It's a good book to read while you're listening to this series. Mm-hmm. I've read it many times over the course of my life. I reread it again just in the last month. And it's it's obviously based on Soviet Russia. Uh, Big Brother is supposed to be Stalin. Even the physical description of him is uh, Stalin-esque with the big mustache. Um, right. The the invisible enemy that's supposed to be running the fifth column in the book is his name is Emmanuel Goldstein. He's based on Trotsky. His physical description is Trotsky. But people may recall if they have read the book that one of the common um, ideas in the book is that. The uh, Eurasia, the country where um, um, the main character Winston lives, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, is he, sorry, fucking is he Eurasia? I can't remember now. But anyway, whichever kind, they're, they're constantly their enemy is changing. Every few right. years, their their enemy changes. But when the enemy changes, the propaganda changes to make out that that has always been their enemy. Because to admit that the other side used to be our enemy would admit that we made a mistake at some point and the uh, Politburo, the, the, the ink sock as they are, the socialists, can't admit that, so it always has to change. So anyway, uh, uh, this is kind of reflected here in that all of a sudden the Americans and the British are the friends of the Soviets. Churchill, been a friend. Churchill tells this funny story in his memoirs. One incident preserved by General Ismay is an apocryphal and somewhat lively form which may be allowed to lighten the narrative. His orderly, a Royal Marine, was shown the sights of Moscow by one of the in-tourist guides. This, said the Russian, is the Eden Hotel, formerly Ribbentrop Hotel. Here is Churchill Street, formerly Hitler Street. Here is the Beaverbrook Railway Station, formerly Goering Railway Station. <laughs> Will you have a cigarette, comrade? The Marine replied, Thank you, comrade, formerly bastard. <laughs> I like that. That's the way the world works. Yes. The enemy of my enemy, as you said before. Is currently my friend. So. Where do then, you off at? Well, then FDR and Churchill meet in 1941 to sign the Atlantic Charter, which we've mentioned in previous episodes. Um, that was, of course, where Roosevelt insisted that for their support, uh, the Brits needed to break apart their trading block right. and give the Americans access to it. Churchill wasn't happy about it, but knew he really had no choice. Funnily enough, he doesn't mention that in his memoirs. Uh, it's only Give really it a miss. FDR's son that included that <laughs> little anecdote. Right. Stalin wasn't at the meeting and refused to sign when he saw the terms of it. Again, like the um, sort of whiffle waffle before he signed the non-aggression pact with Germany, 
He thought the charter was full of pious generalities and he wanted specific terms to be imposed on the Third Reich. Uh, he also demanded recognition of the USSR's 1941 borders with Finland, the Baltic states and Romania, although yeah. in this instance he didn't mention Poland. Yeah. So, so he attacks Finland, takes the Baltic states, takes part of Romania, and then he says, and I insist that you recognize these territories now that I've taken them. If, if I could just, just read a little bit of the Atlantic Charter, because again, I mean, Stalin's right to a certain degree. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? Nothing else matters. And so he's reading this paper that they want him to sign. And I'm sure FDR and Churchill felt very good about what they had written. They write in there that there's going to be no territorial and grand aggrandizement, no territorial changes that made against the wishes of the people. There's going to be self-determination, restoration of self-government to those deprived of it, reduction of trade restrictions, global cooperation to secure better economic and social conditions, blah, blah, blah. Someone's like, fuck all this shit. We'll deal with it later. What are you going to do now to deal with the problem that is Nazi Germany and it's attacking us? All this stuff doesn't mean anything. So, the Western leaders thought it was important to set their goals, whereas Stalin, the pragmatist, just wants to know what's going to be done when, and the rest we can get to when we get to it. So again, just very different mentalities, but Stalin, because of the way his life ended up being a young adult and always uh, being arrested and fighting everybody, he wants to know you know, what's going to be done today. He doesn't want to hear about platitudes, and that really starts to tell you the difference between the type of leadership. And of course, they're never going to get along. They just currently have a common enemy. Yes. Well, two common enemies, really, but uh, in a minute. <clears throat> um, so earlier, back in May of 1940, FDR had moved the entire U.S. Pacific fleet to Hawaii. Uh, now, I want to make a point here. Hawaii, not part of America, uh, independent island, nation-state, invaded and occupied by the Americans. But anyway, that's another another story. Uh, Another podcast. Yeah. So he moves the fleet to Hawaii. Now, basing the fleet, according to the Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral James O. Richardson, basing the fleet at Pearl Harbor was a huge risk. They were sitting ducks. Yeah, it was like what the Soviets had their planes right out along their border. It's not going to take very much for Nazi Germany to just reach over and, and cause some serious damage. And he's like, yeah, we're just way too exposed. They don't have to go very far to attack us. Let's back these up. It was sound, prudent advice that I'm guessing was ignored. Yeah, he even personally traveled to Washington, protested uh the the you know the idea of putting the fleet at pearl harbor said it was a major risk they were a target for attack and weren't ready to defend themselves and uh, fdr went right 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 get it you're fired uh he put, he did a trump he said you're fired <laughs> you're fired it's great yeah. it's going to be great Putting the fleet at Pearl Harbor is going to be great. It's going to be fabulous. A lot of people, I don't know, but a lot of people think it's people a great. Are me. People are telling me it's a great <laughs> idea. It's going to be. It's a great idea. I'm going to put the fleet at Pearl Harbor. Can't miss. Can't believe can't we're miss. can't believe we're comparing FDR to Trump, but fuck it, man. <laughs> no. So yeah, after yeah. Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, yeah, and Hitler declared war on the United States in December eleventh. 
which he did not have to do per the treaty. He chose to. The U.S. finally entered the war. Now we're in. First, we were just kind in, giving supplies to one side, not giving it to the others. But now we are all the way freaking in. And that support thing I want to drill down on. Look, it's, it's important to understand that although the U.S. didn't officially enter the war until December 11th, 1941, they had already taken side Mm-hmm. much earlier through the Lend-Lease Program, which was enacted on March 11th, 1941. This right. is where the United States supplied free France, the United Kingdom, the Republic of China, and later the USSR and some other allied nations with food, oil, and materiel between right. 1941 and 1945. But there were other things as well. Look, it's important to recognize that there are more than one ways to get into a war with a country. Mm-hmm. You can declare war. Good old you can way. invade a country without declaring a war. Right. Or you can provoke war. Right. Which was what Stalin was worried about the Soviet Union doing when the Germans accidentally crossed his border. He didn't want to be... Right. This, Accused of provoking a war. Right. Now, if you block a country's access to resources or provide material assistance to their enemies, Mm -hmm. you are, in effect, declaring war without actually declaring war. Right. It's economic warfare. You know, there there are more ways than one to fight a war. If, let's say, you and I have a falling out and... Mm -hmm. You know, you say, okay, Cameron, I want to take half of the audience and half of the podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I go, no, and I shut down the servers and, you know, keep them all for myself. Right. That's an act of war. I haven't declared war, but I'm basically throwing, you know, I'm, it's, I'm basically slapping yeah. you with the gloves or I'm right. throwing you on, exactly. on the exactly. ground. It's probably not a great analogy. I should have put some thought into coming up with a better analogy. <laughs> but, you know, you ask a typical American, I think, how the United States uh, ended up in World War II, uh-huh. and they will almost certainly tell you that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the Americans fought back. Uh, you're close. It's close. It's more like, uh, yeah, them damn Japanese came over. You do we just sit there buying own beds? Come boom, boom, boom. Is that like, oh hell? It's Sunday morning. We're a bunch of no war. That's pretty much how they'd answer it. Shit, that sounds like my bad American <laughs> accent. You can't even do a better bad American accent than me. <laughs> no, I can't understand the people from the western part of the state of Virginia when they call in. I literally cannot understand them. So that's kind of what I was doing. <laughs> Um, you know, they think it was the the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor that started right. the war. But if you ask them why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, because bastards. That's no. yeah. It's kind of like yeah. asking them why Germany invaded Czechoslovakia or, and Poland. Yeah, Everything. Look. There are reasons, as I've been saying over the course of the last few episodes. There are logical rational reasons why actors do things uh, logical and rational to them. You may disagree, right. you may not like why they do, but they, they have reasons. So why yeah. did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor? Yeah. And if you ask the typical American if the US did anything to provoke war, 
with the Japanese, I'm mm-hmm. guessing they will probably say, no, we were just sitting there in, in Hawaii minding our own business. Yeah. <laughs> we just moved the entire U.S. Pacific fleet. Yeah. Let, now, me, let me try to... Mm. I'm sorry. Let me just try to give a little balance here. So the, this is July uh, 31st of 1941. The foreign minister of Japan is talking to the Japanese ambassador to the United States. And he writes to him in a, in a obviously coded signal that the Americans had read. Uh, Commercial and economic relations between Japan and third countries, led by England and the United States, are gradually becoming so horribly strained that we cannot endure it much longer. Consequently, our empire to save its very life, must take measures to secure the raw materials of the South Seas. So, yeah, um, we were were choking them off. We were shutting them down, weren't letting them get anything. And they're like, well, we're not going to voluntarily let you kill us or we're not going to kill ourselves. We are going to do whatever we need to do to survive and hopefully to prosper. If you're not going to give us the resources we need, if you're not going to sell them to us, we've got to get them from somewhere. And that's what they chose to do. Anybody would in that situation. Yeah, it's like the old, again, philo- philosophical conundrum. Is it is it morally right to shoot somebody and kill them? Right. No. Okay, what if that person is trying to strangle you to death? Okay, yes. Then you have the right for self-defense, the right to strike back. It's, it's similar in, in, in the, the situations like this. When um, one country is trying to crush the air pipe, the economic air pipe of another country... They are going to do what they have to do to survive and to fight back. Now, six months before Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. um, around about the time of your uh, that that diplomatic telegram that you mentioned, I guess, right? FDR had frozen all Japanese assets in the United States. Mm. Um, Britain and the Dutch East Indies followed suit. Now, again, there were reasons for that, and we can go back and go back and go back, and it's a bit like Israel and Palestine. Everyone can go back right. and go, well, you did this because you did that, but you did that, well, you set the bomb, or you killed one of our people, well, you okay, right. but... You looked at me wrong, yeah. Now, remember, Japan is a small island nation like Germany. They don't have much in the way of natural resources. Um, being locked out by the U.S., uh, uh, of of access to their assets and to trade. Japan lost access to three-fourths of its overseas trade, so three-quarters, and 88% of its imported oil. Right. The U.S. embargoed scrap metal shipments to Japan and closed the Panama Canal to Japanese shipping. This, is, bef- this is before Pearl Harbor. Right. It was, right. it was in protest of the things that Japan were doing in Manchuria and places like that. But again, as you exactly. said, right. Japan was suffering and it needed to go in. and it, Well, it felt it needed to go and annex, take control of these countries to get access to the resources in the same way that the US and the UK and France and Spain had done before them. It needed to enlarge its empire to get access to natural resources so its economy could compete in the middle tw- in the mid twentieth century, with the other major economies, right. um, the the scrap metal shipments, sorry, hit them hard because seventy four percent of Japan's scrap iron came from the United States oh. in nineteen thirty eight. Ninety three percent of Japan's copper came from the United States. So when the U.S. cut them off, it was a big fucking deal. 
Yeah. Now, the Americans, the uh, the government explained to the American people, look, we're cutting them off because, one, they're misbehaving. Look what they've been doing in China for the last 10 years, I'm trying to remember. But also, we need this material ourselves. Obviously, we're going to be getting into a war or we're trying to do our lend-lease stuff here. So we need this material to give to Britain and to anybody else who's on our side. So, yes, we're punishing them, but we need it for our own survival. We need it to help our allies. And because they put it like that, the American people were a lot more comfortable with it as opposed to going, well, because because you can say what you want about America, but we do really have this sense of But at least they way. killed Hitler. Exactly. What? So fair play? What? Say so we, that we again. Have, we have, we have this thing. Yeah. So it's kind of some people don't believe it, but anyway. But <laughs> but the American people were bamboozled by our government by government by saying we need the material for ourselves and we need it for our allies. And also, um, the attitude in Japan was: look at what Germany's done. They have gobbled up all of these islands. Look what Soviet Union's done. They have taken Finland and the three Baltic countries. This is our time. This is our opportunity. And they literally had posters all over the major cities that said, don't miss the bus. It was literally, mm-hmm. don't miss the bus. This is their opportunity. And they needed the material to do that, to not miss their opportunity. And the United States wasn't giving them, or excuse me, wasn't allowing them access to that material. They were not going to miss the bus. They were going to get it from somewhere to build their empire, just like a lot of other people were building their empire. And, of course, the very reason that FDR moved the Pacific Fleet to Hawaii was so it was close to... Uh, Japan and to and to you know the the field of activity in the Pacific where Japan was attacking uh, the Philippines and Indonesia and Manchuria mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff and the Japanese knew that so the attack on Pearl Harbor was partly in retaliation for cutting off their food oil uh, copper and uh, money and scrap metal etc etc and it was partly a preemptive strike. Okay, right. well, we know you're going to use your fleet to try and stop us from what we're doing, the, we, the things that we think we need to do in order to survive economically, so we're going to take it out first. Yeah, we're going to bitch slap you. It's going to take you a couple of years to regroup. By that time, we will take what we have needed. We will entrench ourselves, and then we will be fighting a defensive war, which is always easier to do. This is going to work out perfectly. <laughs> but nothing went according. And, and and I'm just going to throw this out. This is nothing but trivia, but I just think this is so amazing. You know, General uh, Admiral y- Yamamoto uh, said, we can't take on the United States. In order for us to take on the United States and win, we have to cross the Pacific, take Hawaii, land in California, cross over the Rockies, go through the Plain states. Then we have to get to the Appalachian uh, Mountains there and go to Washington and make them sign a treaty. That's everything we would have to do in order to win against the United States. And the people who were pro-war went, yes, yes, exactly right. This is our battle plan. So they took his sarcastic statement and they turned it to their battle plan. And he just knew there wasn't going to be a chance of hell in winning, but he was a dutiful and loyal soldier, uh, sailor, whatever. So he went along with it. I just think it's kind of funny. He spelled it out for them what they would have to do to win. And they said, yes, that's exactly what we are going to do. And, of course, as we all know, not the way it worked out. Um, Getting back to Lend-Lease. Yes. You know, we talk about Lend-Lease, and again, like the Marshall Plan, people think, oh, well, you know, this was very uh, noble of the United States to uh, selflessly give warships and warplanes and other weaponry to these countries. 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, look, definitely it's, it was a good thing. It helped, yeah. uh, but it, it wasn't purely selfless, of course. Yeah. It was all about trade and economics, getting back to my favourite subjects. Don't uh, believe me? Listen to US Secretary of State Cordell Hull in 1940 mm-hmm. when he told the Ways and Means Committee that, and I'm quoting, the primary objective of this new proposal, and he's talking about Lendlease here, Right. Is to is both to reopen the old and seek new outlets for our surplus production through the gradual moderation of the excessive and more extreme impediments to the admission of American products into foreign markets. Mm. He also He's said it out there. leadership toward a new system of international relationships in trade and other economic affairs would devolve very largely upon the United States because of our great economic strength. We should assume this leadership and the responsibly the responsibility that goes with it primarily for reasons of pure national self-interest. Yeah. Just being honest. And 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 I love this part. The sales one of the sales pitches for Lend Lease was look, we give stuff to England, to Britain and even though it's expensive stuff, it keeps them fighting. We don't have to fight. We'll get stuff to England. We'll get stuff to the Soviet Union. But this will literally keep us out of the war. This is nothing but a good thing. It's a win-win. Of course, that was a big lie. But that's how it was pitched to the American people. And, it, and because they wanted to believe it, a lot of them did. Mm, it kept them out of the war for a while, I guess. It helped. It yeah. helped a little bit. Six months. You know, and one of the principal concerns, as we said before, talking about the Atlantic Charter, was to break into the British trading system. Um, Assistant Secretary of State Willard L. Thorpe said, uh, any serious failure to maintain this trade flow, he's talking about being able to sell stuff into Europe, Mm -hmm. would put millions of American businessmen, farmers and workers out of business. Can't have that. So this was their concern. Look, this war is going to fuck up our ability to sell shit to Europe. Right. Uh, yeah, we, we're, we're trying to recover from this economic, you know, depression. This is the last thing we need right now. Yeah, we need to do whatever we can to maintain and also to use this as an opportunity. Because you know, if if you send American products, a lot of these countries weren't buying American products because of the trading blocks, or not as much as the Americans wanted them to anyway. So if right. you start sending them products. Uh, John Deere tractors, etc., or American weapons, and then they get used to using those products, and they get used to those brands, uh, and the relationships between the manufacturer and the customer get developed. And we see more of this in the Marshall Plan years later. And and uh, you know, the, it was the way that the U.S. found a crack and broke into the these yeah. European trading systems with American brands uh, for the first time. So anyway, uh, the second Moscow conference, a.k.a. Operation Bracelet, mm. was Winston Churchill's first mission to Moscow in August 1942, his first face-to-face meeting with Stalin. Yes. And, uh, of course, one of my favourite aspects of this was I think it was on this trip when he had a special hole cut in his flight suit because they didn't have pressurised planes back then. You had to wear a flight suit. And he had a special hole cut in it so he could smoke a cigar. <laughs> He's or got his many cigars straight. for the duration of the flight. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's right. Oh, my God. So he meets Stalin. Um, 
Stalin again says, where's my second front, you cunt? And Churchill says, <laughs> uh, nah, sorry, still not going to happen, yeah. man. Well, uh, Churchill was like, okay, okay, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. You want a second front. Here's what I'm going to do. How about a second front, listen, in North Africa? Huh? Huh? What do you think? So Stalin was like, fuck, I'll take what I can get. But yeah, I, I mean, the United States and, and Britain, we were just not ready to go to the mainland in Europe. It just wasn't going to happen. Had to start somewhere because America had to bloody their troops, if you will. So the best they could do at the time, because America, FDR wanted to focus on Japan first, Europe second, but Churchill brought them around to the, his way of thinking. They had to start in North Africa. And um, so Stalin had to be happy with what they were willing to give him. And that was all that he could get at the time. It's like your house is burning down and I'm asking you to put it out. <laughs> With a with you know a big fire right. truck and you yeah. go look I'm not going to put it out but you know what? see that guy smoking down the street I'm going to go and put his cigarette out yeah because you know you got to spray somewhere. your driveway I'm going to spray your driveway and work my way towards your house you're welcome F- quite famously uh, Churchill according to his own account of this uh, plan uh, drew a crocodile <laughs> he yeah. grew, pen and paper pencil and paper drew a picture of a crocodile. I'm sure and it was a good one. Explained to I'd love to have a picture a copy of that crocodile. Explained to uh uh Stalin Stalin that the crocodile represented the Nazis and that right. they would attack its soft belly as yes. well as the hard snout. You've got soft the hard snout, Stalin. We get right. that. You're punching yeah. it in the nose. Good like, for you. Like bloody crocodile dundee. Right. We're but gonna, uh, we're gonna come in between the testicles yeah. and go for the soft underbelly. Right. We're gonna take You're its welcome. nuts. You punch in the nose. <laughs> we're gonna take it and take its nuts. Oh my god. Stalin Wish me luck. responded, yeah. May God help this enterprise <laughs> to succeed. I like in, in Churchill's memoirs, he notes how quickly Stalin grasped the intricacies of the plan, and ah. Churchill says, I was deeply impressed with this remarkable statement. It showed the Russian... Uh, Stalin sort of said, oh, I see, and if you do that, then this will happen and that, and they'll divert forces here, and this will blah, blah, blah. Right, and start he to said, fall apart. He yeah. said it, it showed the Russian dictator's swift and complete mastery of a problem hitherto novel to him. Very few people alive could have comprehended in so few minutes the reasons which we had all so long been wrestling with for months. He saw it all in a flash. Nice. And, and, and Stalin kind of reminds me of Augustus at that point. It's like when this war started, Stalin was not. And I think we've shown this when he got his butt kicked in, near Poland. Uh, he was not a military guy. He was not a military leader in that sense. But he studied his butt off once they were uh, at war with Germany, just like Augustus is going to study and learn a lot. And so by the time he gets to Churchill, he can immediately see the wider implications of attacking at a certain point. So he is quickly become uh, become very well read in, in the tactics and strategy because he is running, literally running, making almost every decision there is uh, this war ever since he got over himself after after Germany attacked in June. Mm. He also found he's a gripper in guys like Zhukov and he was like, you know what, yes, you go, you go run that, you go run that down you, there. I, you I, go, I don't you need, got that over there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stay, stay here. here. I'll stay here. You, you go, go over there. there. <laughs> Division of labor. That's all it is. I'm not saying I couldn't do it. <laughs> Oh, I could fucking but do it. I could do could. it if I had to do it. But, you okay. know, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to. I got like other I things you. I got to do. I got you. So, what do I want to do? Yeah, yeah. 
It's it's a waste of time if we're I'll both doing it. You go do it. You, I could do what you do, but you couldn't do what I do. That's See? why nobody See? nobody could do what yeah. I do. Nice. We got to wrap this up. Um, so um, the second, meeting second, yeah, yeah. The meeting didn't go altogether well, though. They did yeah. trade insults. Stalin <laughs> told Churchill that he believed the negotiations with France and Britain were insincere and for the purpose yes. of intimidating Hitler with whom the Allies would later come to terms. That's fucking insane. You know what you're going to do to me, what you did to Czechoslovakia? This is just a game. You're trying to scare Hitler into talking. You're going to sell me out and just let us two slaughter each other. Fuck you. But, um, I mean, and he was right to to be nervous because they weren't giving him the second front that he'd been asking for for a while. And they're still taking it on the chin. He also accuses Britain at some stage, I think it was in a later meeting, of being scared of fighting the Germans. Yeah, <laughs> it's not so bad. You should try it sometime. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah we, we try do it. it. It's good. Yeah. We like it. It's nice. It's nice. You think? I think it's nice. Um, yeah, but keep in mind that both England and Germany were virulently anti-communist. So oh, yeah. he did think that they would do a deal. And and there's, yeah. you know, there's, there's maybe some truth in that. You know... Um, this was partly fueled by Rudolf Hess's mission to Britain in May of that year. Rudolf Hess was deputy Führer to Adolf Hitler from mm-hmm. 1933 to 1941. And then in 1941, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to solve this problem. Yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone. Jump in my plane, fly it by myself to Scotland. That's right. Jump so- out. Parachute down. Yeah, crash the plane, jump out. <laughs> Badass motherfucker that I am. <laughs> with his unibrow. Somersault anyway, when I hit the ground. Some- <laughs> Don't even need a parachute. Can. Somersault, can. come up, two guns. That's right. Sword. <laughs> bit of a leap. Right. Ninja. Put my ninja hood on. Duck behind a tree. He, uh, he went to try and negotiate peace, allegedly, with the United yes. Kingdom. So yes. he gets there, apparently doesn't tell anyone, including Hitler, that he's going to go do it. There's this different, right. you know, no one really knows. There's different right. versions of this story. There's some reports that Hitler did know, some reports that he didn't. Hess claimed he did. Others claimed he didn't. But flies to Scotland by himself, gets taken prisoner. Uh, well, basically hands himself over to the authorities. Hello, right. uh, hello. my name is Rudolf Hess. You may have heard of me, uh, Deputy Führer to Adolf Hitler. You may have heard of him, I do not two. know. Uh, would, did you like a, would you like a cigarette, Mr. Hess? I'll have nine, nine, nine. Oh, anyway. Well, you're going to get cancer. And do you but know he who literally was... acted like he was officially there and he was very arrogant and pompous with what he was demanding and that didn't go over too well. No warning, just turns up. Now... <laughs> Do you know who was involved in his arrest? Olivia Newton-John's father. Get out of here. He, I did not know that. He was working uh, at Bletchley Park mm-hmm. on the Enigma Project. He was an MI5 nice. officer. And when they got this guy, and this guy was claiming to be Rudolf Hess, they had, <laughs> they, they had to figure out how to authenticate his identity. They didn't have any like photos to match or whatever. Right. And um, he was actually able to verify Hess's identity. And the the amazing thing about this is in order to confirm Hess's identity to Churchill, instead right. of just writing a memo or picking up the phone or going to see Churchill, 
he decided, you know, based on Stalin and Hitler's success in communicating things in song, that he would do it <laughs> himself. I've got to wrap this up. I've got to go. But Good by the stuff. way, her yeah. maternal yes. grandfather was Max right. Born, German physicist right. who won the 1954 Nobel Prize in Physics for his ah. fundamental research in quantum mechanics, especially in the statistical interpretation of the wave function. So her father, MI5 officer, who right. identifies Hess and helps her arrest Hess, yes. her grandfather on her mother's side, German physicist, wins the Nobel Prize, yes. and she, of course, made the film clip for Let's Get Physical. So, look, not a bad contribution from that family. Hess, spends the, rest, Hess spends the rest of his life in prison and hung yeah. himself at the yeah. age of 93 and Stalin believed that Britain was going to do another Munich agreement with Germany and allow them to invade the USSR. Yeah. They parted in an atmosphere of goodwill, though Churchill said, uh, after the first day, but oh, then they sorry. met again the next day, and it didn't go so no. well. And, and next time we're going to talk about why in the blue blazes do you hang yourself at 93? You think you would have done that a lot sooner, but... We'll get into that next time. Well, his his children believe he was murdered, but again, why do you kill somebody at ninety three when they've been your prisoner for What's forty the years? Point? You know, was... What's the point? Anyway, quick review before we go. Um, yes, quick review. Quick, 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 quick. Another one from Australia, Bullfrog Hunter. Being a fan of twentieth century history, having an in depth examination of the Cold War is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. The context is being set, and with various powers having many suspicions, somewhat justified, of each other, and soon the actual Cold War will start. The humour and music style from Cam and Ray's previous podcasts continue here and are well merged. Given that so much of what is happening today is due to the Cold War, I would recommend this to anyone. A word of caution this story is told from multiple perspectives. So for those who grew up being spoon fed, the state saying, version of history, be it UK, USSR, USA, Australia, France, this is likely to make you do that oh-so-hard thing of think arch-conservatives <laughs> need not apply. Send us an email, Bullfrog Hunter, with your address, and we will hit you up with some goodies. Thank yes. you, Ray. Gotta go. Thank you, Love Cam. you. Gotta go as well. Love you all. Uh, we will be back, before you know it, with episode whatever's next. 16. Right. And that's and that's a threat, not a promise. Here's the outro. All right. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.
Chrissy's listening to this would totally be a threesome like I'm not a you, you have 1981 John Travolta I don't even think he was a Scientologist then <laughs> and by the way in 1981 you were only two so you know <laughs> I was 12 11 12 so that's different you know not cheating if your wife was only two at the time. 